Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Avery Weinman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Jewish Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Susan Gilson-Miller about her book, Years of Glory, Nellie Benatar in the Pursuit of Justice in Wartime North Africa, which she published in 2021 with Stanford University Press. Miller is Professor Emerita of History at the University of California, Davis, and her many path-breaking books and articles on Jewish history in North Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries have long established her as a trailblazer for other historians who work on Jewish history in the modern Middle East and North Africa. Today, we'll be discussing Professor Miller's latest book, which is a sort of biographical microhistory. On one level, Years of Glory is a tale of the remarkable life of one woman, Helen Benatar, a Moroccan Jewish lawyer and community figurehead known by her nickname, Nellie, and her heroic efforts to help thousands of refugees displaced by the Second World War, the Holocaust, and their aftermath. On another level, Benatar's humanitarian activities between 1939 and 1945, the warriors that she described as her years of glory in her private recollections, speak to big historical topics of significant scholarly interest, including Moroccan Jews' struggle to balance their competing local Jewish, national, and French imperial identities, Vichy France's network of North African forced labor and concentration camps, the establishment of the first human rights organizations, and indeed the very creation of an idea of human rights, and the need for new standards of legal status and protection for new categories of displaced persons and the stateless, which emerged as the reality of the human crisis of the Second World War and the Holocaust made clear the weaknesses of nationality, citizenship, and regimes of documentation. In addition to these major thematic and topical points, Years of Glory also raises methodological questions. What do individual human lives reveal about the past that might otherwise be lost in other forms of history writing? How does the historian work with a personal archive? What are the challenges of working with a personal archive, including the absence of critical information, the need to scrutinize the bias and subjectivity of the historical subject, and the historian's need to temper or amplify their own authorial voice? What do bottom-up histories such as this one, which centers the actions of individuals and the community as they work to aid refugees, reveal that top-down histories of states, international structures, institutions, and organizations cannot? 
Susan Miller puts all of this on the table and more for us in Years of Glory, which is as historically insightful as it is plainly riveting to read. And with that, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Miller. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So let's start with a brief biographical sketch of the heroine of this history before we get deeper into the conversation. So in a short book jacket, elevator pitch description, who was Nellie Benatar and why is her story important? Nellie Benatar was uh, born in Tangier, Morocco in 1898 uh, into a very special community, uh, which were the Spanish-speaking Jews uh, of northern Morocco who had uh, uh, a long and uh, uh, successful history in uh, making a place for themselves in this Moroccan city uh, at the very northern tip of Morocco on the Strait of Gibraltar. They were uh, businessmen, they were tradesmen, they were intellectuals, uh, they were uh, people who traced their ancestry back uh, to uh, Spain uh, of the, uh, uh, in the Muslim period, Andalusia, as it's often referred to. Uh, and they were forced out of Spain uh, in in the late 15th century by the uh, Reconquista, the reconquest of Spain by the, uh, the Catholic monarchies. But they never forgot their Spanish roots and their uh, life in Northern Morocco over the, the 300, 400 years that they lived there was very much infused with the taste, if you will, of uh, Hispanic uh, uh, culture. Uh, Nelly Benatar was born into a family that uh, traced its roots back to to Spain and was also um, very prominent in Tangier of the 19th century. Her father was a successful businessman. Her mother came from another uh, of, a, of a very uh, elite family, you might say. Her mother came from another Spanish elite family that had settled in Gibraltar. So she was a, a child of privilege. Uh, and that was the context in which she grew up. However, she was also someone who was uh, introduced by her family uh, into the mainstream of uh, Jewish life in Tangier in the 19th century. She didn't go to a private elite school. She went to the school of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, which was the uh, school system set up by the French government throughout the Middle East for um, children of every social class. Uh, and she began life as a child of privilege, but she grew up um, understanding very well uh, the situation of her fellow Jews uh, in northern Morocco. Uh, she was someone who was multilingual uh, through her family uh, uh, situation. Her parents were multilingual. Not only did they know Spanish, they knew French. Uh, they knew some Italian. Uh, they uh, were certainly knew Hebrew uh, of, of the uh, uh, religious uh, sort. Um, uh, and they, uh, they were also well-traveled. Uh, they had <clears throat> uh, branches of families uh, around the Mediterranean in England. They visited often. They were of a very, very cosmopolitan culture that is uh, associated with the Jews, uh, the Jewish community uh, of northern Morocco. 
Right. So that's an excellent foray into the family background. Um, I'm curious also what her specific activities really were in the time period that we're talking about here. So in the interwar period and then into the war period, what was she kind of up to generally and what makes this significant? Well, uh, Nellie Benatar married uh, uh, after finishing uh, Lycée High School, and uh, she married another uh, 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 northern Moroccan uh, personality, Moises uh, Benatar, uh, and uh, she started to raise a family, uh, two children in the in the uh, 1920s. But suddenly in uh, 1930, uh, she got the idea of uh, trying uh, out uh, uh, to get uh, uh, her uh, her skills, her her skills in uh, argumentation, you might see say, and uh, in her intellectual uh, skills that were really exceptional, uh, and uh, to apply to the university in Bordeaux uh, for a law degree, and she did in three years. She completed a law degree by correspondence. She was the first Moroccan woman uh, to. Uh, Passed the French bar uh, in modern times. Morocco's first um, woman lawyer uh, in, in the modern era, and she began to practice law in uh, in Casablanca, where she she and her family had moved uh, during World War One, and she took on a variety of cases. Some of them were uh, business cases. Some of them were actually uh, 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 helping people who had been deprived of their rights. Uh, to regain them, uh, civil ch- cases, and she also became involved in the in the Zionist movement, uh, the nascent uh, Zionist movement in Casablanca in the 1930s, uh, and uh, she uh, was what we would call today a political activist. And although she came from a well-to-do family, uh, and her circle were elite uh, individuals, she had a great sense of. Uh, uh, her community obligations, and uh, even more, a great sense of, uh, of of justice for all, of right and wrong. And she realized that her uh, access and uh, her legal uh, expertise gave her special tools uh, that others uh, didn't have. So throughout the 30s, she was practicing law and, and working for um, Jewish causes and Zionist causes. Uh, she and her husband developed a wrote a plan of reform for the Jewish community of Casablanca that would equalize the distribution of wealth within the community. Very, very forward-looking couple. In 1939, uh, when war was declared, uh, Nelly uh, Benatar came down solidly on the side of the Allies. She volunteered at the British uh, consulate in Casablanca to help. She went to the American consulate uh, but wasn't able really to find a niche through official channels. But once the refugees uh, fleeing uh, Hitler's Europe began to arrive in Morocco in great numbers, and this was mainly after the fall of France in 1940, she found uh, uh, a place for herself in helping uh, these uh, refugees, many of them who came with uh, no resources at all, uh, others did have uh, a way of survival, but the majority did not. And she set up single-handedly uh, 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 institutionalized uh, places where they could stay, uh, get food, get comfort, uh, help, and especially legal help with, with gaining ongoing passage out of Morocco 
to to the west, to the to uh, to North and South America, uh, and she did that using her legal skills, applying them uh, in negotiating visas for them, uh, tickets on ships. She worked very closely with out, uh, external organizations like the Joint Distribution Committee. She worked with Hias, which was the immigrant association, the Hebrew Immigrant Association, uh, and other groups like the Quakers, and uh, in single-handedly, with very little help, managed to help hundreds, thousands, in fact, refugees from Europe to uh, to escape and gain their freedom in the West. Yeah, and uh, I should let speak listeners in on a little bit of a secret and say that while this is the first scholarly book on Nellie Benatar, it's not the first time that I've heard of her. And so here I have to explain a little bit about how the world, the very, very small world of academia works. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where my mentor was Professor Alma Heckman. Mm-hmm. Alma also works on Jewish history in Morocco, more specifically on Moroccan Jewish communists. And I know that when she was doing her PhD at UCLA, you were on her committee. Uh, coincidentally, UCLA is where I'm doing my PhD now. And so there's even an additional layer of in- interconnectedness there. But to go back to my time at UCSC, I took a class with Professor Heckman titled The Holocaust in the Arab World, which left a huge impact on me and really influenced my decision to go out for a PhD in the first place. And it was during this course that I first heard about this absolute dynamo of a Jewish Moroccan woman and her really singular efforts to aid refugees and secure their legal rights. And of course, that woman was Nellie Benatar. So I was really captivated by her story from the start. And my question is along these lines. It's how did you first learn of Nellie Benatar? And when did you realize that this is someone whose life story really needed to be told? Well, that's a great question because I'm, uh, I often think about that. Why did I become involved in, in this particular topic? Uh, I've been working on um, Jewish topics in, in northern Morocco for uh, a while before I um, before I encountered uh, Nelly Benatar and trying to understand what happened during the war years, not only in the north of Morocco, but throughout Morocco, and what was the impact on uh, on the local population, both Muslim and Jewish, uh, of North Africa on North Africans' uh, life uh, during the war. And I wanted to see it from a local perspective, and that was really um, what. Um, uh, what, what the uh, initial uh, impulse was as a historian to to try and um, recreate a picture of the human aspects of the war in North Africa, how ordinary people live through it, their strategies of survival, uh, the, the different ways that the war impacted on their lives. And the absence of literature on this topic was just uh, stunning. Uh, there was very, very little written, uh, written about what happened in this uh, southern side of the Mediterranean um, during World War II, uh, uh, only a stone's throw away from the action uh, in Europe, uh, uh, other than military history. Uh, there was very little social or uh, cultural um, uh, reflection on the impact of the war on North African lives. Um, and this, this is really what um, uh, drew me forward. And I also realized that the way I had to go about uh, expanding uh, this particular sector of research, if you will, was through um, learning more about how individuals 
individual lives uh, and experiences uh, uh, were shaped uh, by the, the, the war. Uh, I wanted to tell a story, and I wanted to tell a story how ordinary Moroccans, uh, along with Europeans uh, who arrived in Morocco, along with French administrators, along with humanitarian organizations, and of course the refugees themselves, uh, became um, came on stage um, as actors. As far as Nelly Benatar was concerned, um, I kind of fell upon her personality by accident. There was no uh, history or biography of her life. There were a couple of short articles uh, done by uh, an, an Israeli uh, uh, researcher uh, who picked up uh, the, the thread of her story and, and realized um, the value of it. But it was not uh, book length, wasn't intense. And it wasn't based on the most important source of all that I soon discovered, which was her personal archive. Now, when a historian finds a personal archive on a topic that interests um, interests her, then this is like striking gold. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, her personal archive was at the cent- uh, Central Archives for the Jewish People um, in, in Jerusalem. And I made a trip to Jerusalem, and I started looking at the documents, and I realized that the, it was it was really a, a treasure. Uh, and then I found that Nelly Benatar was not only confined to that one archive, huge archive of 18,000 documents, but she was in other archives as well. And I began to visit uh, various archives, and, and chiefly uh, through the agency of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., that had incidentally digitized the, the Jerusalem archive, so I was really in business because I could carry the archive with me. And I found other um, sources um, in Washington, D.C., at the Holocaust Museum that corroborated the story and expanded on it, particularly archives of the American Friends Service Committee, the Quakers. And then I went to Rabat and found more information and Jerusalem, in Paris, I found information on Nellie. She had surviving relatives that could talk to me about her life and her personality, her son-in-law in particular. I went to the diplomatic archives in Nantes and found expansive archives on refugees in North Africa during World War II. I found information at the central, uh, uh, the archives uh, in, in New York, the, uh, the Jewish archives, uh, and of course in, in the National Archives in Washington, D.C. 25 archives in all, I found information on Nellie Benatar. It was, she was just waiting there um, to be revealed, to come out, if you will. Uh, and uh, fortunately, I was... Uh, the one who had um, the pleasure and the task of doing that. Yeah, that's really every historian's dream is to kind of find an archival source as rich about someone who is as fascinating as she is. Uh, We're all very lucky also now that there's a fantastic book that finally gives us this story of this absolutely riveting person who has so much to say um, about the big historical trends, about the big historical currents um, of this period as well. But I want to dive a little bit deeper into Benatar's biography and kind of the social world that she moved in in the interwar period and the 1940s. So we discussed a little bit about her Sephardi roots, um, the sides of her family, uh, the kind of politics around in Tangier and then after after that Casablanca, where she was living. 
But one of the things that really stuck out to me as I was reading kind of the biography of her, of her family, of her education, of her social circles, was just how valuable having kind of elite status was um, to the ultimate ability um, to achieve what she wanted to achieve in terms of humanitarian work. And so I'm wondering if you can help us explain how belonging to the creme de la creme, if you will, of the elite Sephardi Moroccan imperially aligned world was a huge boon um, to her ability to enact success in human rights work. And here I'm also thinking specifically about her personal family ties with important French imperial figures like Charles Nog. Yes, no guess. Yes, um, for sure she was a member of uh, the Casablanca elite <clears throat> and that she was well situated and she had many uh, many contacts. She had personal wealth, uh, although not enormous. Uh, she didn't have to uh, worry about her daily bread, uh, although she suffered during the war because there were race laws imposed upon the Jews uh, in Morocco that mainly the elites suffered from. Uh, the uh, uh, quotas on doctors and lawyers uh, uh, especially, and once the quota was reached, uh, those who didn't come under the umbrella were kicked out of their uh, uh, their jobs. She was de- denied the right to practice law, uh, and she was in a, in a, if you will, in a professional vacuum. But uh, the what gave her what gave her the uh, uh, energy and the initiative to do what she did. Uh, was much deeper than uh, her her family situation or their economic status uh, or her circle of friends, although all of those factors mattered. Uh, what gave her that um, uh, that impetus uh, was uh, uh, inner uh, qualities that uh, that she had uh, her her sense of uh, what was the right thing to do. Uh, her moral code, her uh, her integrity, uh, her will, if you will. You know, I wrote this book um, uh, after a number of years of research um, in ni- in nineteen in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one during the first wave of the pandemic, and it was actually a great book to write during a pandemic when we were facing questions of survival and moral responsibility on a daily basis and watching healthcare workers coping and doing their duty at enormous cost to themselves. And for me, the pandemic raised an essential question about, about Nellie because it raised the question of heroism and, and what constitutes a hero. And purely by chance, I had found a hero in the archives in the shape of this remarkable woman who actually risked her life uh, numerous times to save others simply because she thought it was the right thing to do. Uh, And I think that's the essential um, quality uh, of uh, uh, Nellie Benatar, uh, in addition to all the other things that you mentioned, was her character uh, and her sense of uh, what, 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 what her mission in life was. Right. Certainly the the moral aspect there comes through really strongly in the book. Um, and I think is also one of the most memorable and moving parts of the book that you've written here also, which is it does, her sense of justice is very profound and it comes through in her activities um, that she is willing to put her life on the line 
quite frequently uh, her reputation on the line, her security on the line for a greater moral purpose. I suppose the question I had about elite ties was more about the utility of having these connections in the French empire and how from this place of deep kind of sense of justice, uh, she was able to utilize um, the ties that she had by her social position to enact what she was trying to do in terms of social justice. So to make a humanitarian difference through using the tools that she had at her disposal by just having longstanding family ties with important people. Well, that's certainly true. Uh, And it gave her the self-confidence to reach uh, into the highest echelons uh, of the French uh, colonial administration in Morocco, whereas others might not have dared to do that. Uh, she was at home. She knew how to talk. Her French was impeccable. Uh, she was of the same culture, if you will, uh, a Republican liberal culture through the Alliance education that she had as, as the Resident General, the head of the French administration in Morocco. And through her ties, her personal ties that she made um, uh, because of her status, uh, with the wife of, of this 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 man uh, Charles Noguès, she the Noguès's wife introduced her uh, to her husband, and she had access to the head of the French uh, colonial uh, 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 structure, if you will. There, and she met other people through him. When she had a problem or a question or a request, she went directly to him, and she in her archive there certainly two instances where she met with him privately, and I document them in the book, and she asked him for things. She said, look, I need this, and I need that, and I need you to uh, 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 tighten up this law that uh, that's already on the books, protecting political refugees uh, uh, and not allow them to be thrown in jail, as, as the Vichy regime wanted to do. Uh, I need your help in getting access uh, to... Um, Lower people lower in the administration that are giving me a hard time. I need extra uh, petrol for my car. I need a, a place to to house these refugees. Um, find me something in the system uh, that we can use. And behind her actions is always this uh, uh, intimation, suggestion that her friend at the top was turning uh, turning the wheels and providing open doors. Uh, she she was involved in the underground in Morocco, a topic that has never been covered in, in scholarly literature. And she was uh, most likely revealed as a member of the underground, yet she was never arrested. Um, she was never put in jail, although threatened several times. She had a protector. She had a protector in the top man in, in the um, Vichy-appointed government. In Morocco, and that in itself was quite extraordinary. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about this in a question that I want to ask shortly. But it tells us a lot about individual agency, and really maybe what what sort of strategic assets individuals have that institutions and organizations don't, um, by proxy of the fact that they have considerably more personal leeway and uh, kind of room to look for loopholes. But before we move to that question, I want to give a little bit just more context about the war and the refugee crisis. So World War II broke out in 1939, and Morocco very quickly became a migration way station for refugees. Why did Morocco become a major passageway for refugees trying to get out of Europe? What were some of the common routes, and what were the conditions of these routes like? 
Well, it's uh, it's a great question. It's one that is difficult to answer um, because the escape routes from Europe changed very, very often, um, depending upon uh, the prevailing uh, political situation. And Morocco became an escape route um, in 1940, after the fall of France, and uh, people were fleeing in great numbers uh, from, from, Fla- uh, from France and coming down to Marseille. And at that point, it was uh, before 1940, many, many European Jews uh, left Europe through uh, through Spain and Portugal, took uh, boats uh, from uh, from Portugal in particular uh, cr- uh, on the transatlantic crossing. But it was very difficult after uh, the fall of France for people to get across the Spanish border uh, to Portugal. And the alternate route uh, that they chose was to go head south into the southern part of France that was not occupied by the Nazis, the unoccupied zone, uh, and the, the main port there was Marseille. Marseille had for um, a number of years been the jumping off place uh, for uh, people leaving uh, the, uh, the, the Europe and going to North Africa. There was a direct line between Marseille uh, and Al- Algiers uh, and Oran, two cities on the Algerian coast. And the, uh, the pre-war route was to get, take the boat across, get off uh, at either one of those places, and then hop on the Trans-Maghreb train that went from Tunis to Casablanca. That was the way people went. Casablanca was not really a stopover on, on, the, on the Trans-Mediterranean route. But when all other routes closed down in 1940, particularly the, the route from, uh, from Lisbon, uh, this Mediterranean crossing became the major escape route uh, along which uh, refugees were moving. Uh, and boats that, took, that plied this uh, uh, trans-Mediterranean route added Casablanca um, to their, uh, to their uh, uh, route, to their uh, stopovers, and brought uh, hundreds, I would say thousands of refugees uh, across the Mediterranean uh, to Casablanca, uh, and where they uh, uh, left uh, left the boats, uh, uh, went ashore, and then awaited another um, uh, uh, carrier uh, from Casablanca uh, that took them uh, across the Atlantic. The American uh, uh, export line that had run the uh, Lisbon route was out of business in North Africa, the American, the United States, particularly after it joined the war, uh, closed down all American shipping um, uh, to Europe. So from Casablanca, Casablanca was a way station uh, for refugees debarking uh, from ships that had brought them from Marseille. And then the problem was to find other ships. The Portuguese line uh, was still active on the transatlantic route. And very often it was a Portuguese ship that would then pick up passengers in Casablanca and carry them uh, to the New World. So they were shifting routes, um, shifting possibilities for moving. And uh, the people people on their own, refugees on their own, had a very difficult time making these arrangements without help. And it was people like Benatar, there were others, um, that were uh, in the business 
of helping uh, refugees complete their journeys uh, to safety. Yeah, that's exactly the point I want to discuss. It's uh, in this kind of tumult of massive migration streams and these thousands and thousands of refugees, it's quite difficult for the individual refugee to make passage somewhere safe without help. And so what we see in this period is the establishment really for the first time of international human rights organizations. So my question is, what were some of these organizations? Um, How did they see themselves, uh, their work? And how did they conceive of what was this very new idea of inherent human rights? Well, you're asking several questions uh, or raising several points at once. As far as international human rights are concerned, this uh, we have evidence of uh, uh, organizations uh, in the interwar period uh, that were working on helping refugees in refugee crises. Uh, you can go back to the First World War. The, uh, the Armenian crisis was helped by American refugee. The Armenians who were uh, uh, massacred in, in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire and had to flee uh, to Syria and Lebanon uh, were helped by American uh, rescue organizations. The, uh, the, uh, the American Joint Distribution Committee uh, was helpful in Russia. Uh, and be, in the interwar period, they were working in Eastern Europe as well. So international human rights uh, was, was alive and well uh, before the war. It's just it, it never reached North Africa. Uh, it, it was a, a first uh, when Nelly Benatar uh, made contact with the Joint Distribution Committee, the Joint, as it was called, and uh, began to cooperate with them on uh, bringing refugees uh, out of Casablanca uh, toward the New World. And the, uh, these uh, uh, groups of the Joint, in particular, was immensely helpful. It, uh, it purchased it, uh, tickets uh, for refugees. It, it, uh, it uh, made arrangements uh, with uh, shipping companies. Uh, and it, it it helped enormously in uh, smoothing uh, the way. So uh, that uh, uh, that aspect of it was already in place. Uh, what was new here was uh, the, uh, the 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 introduction of this kind of activity uh, to North Africa. It was a totally new field for humanitarian activities, uh, and the the question of refugee rights. Uh, was really not an issue the first two years of the war. Refugees were people, mostly stateless people. When they left Europe, they left behind their passports. Uh, they didn't matter from, uh, for, uh, they didn't uh, add up to much. Um, there were refugees from, from, from Nazi Germany who had actually, uh, their passports were, were stamped out. They had big X's on them. They were they were no longer valid. So a, a large percentage of the refugees who arrived in Morocco were stateless individuals, and their rights were not at all clear. They were uh, uh, regarded as uh, uh, interlopers, as unwanted. They were often referred to in the press as undesirables. They were seen as people who were sources uh, of um, uh, uh, criminal activity, uh, and uh, this this was a very a very precarious situation for them. Uh, and the the, uh, the solution was, of course, to to move them on. After 1942, uh, there was a beginning of a change, and Benatar became very uh, involved in trying to win refugees 
who were stuck in Morocco and began to be uh, relocated to um, uh, internment camps. Uh, some of them uh, uh, run locally, others run by, uh, this is in 1943, I should say, uh, by the new United Nations Refugee uh, uh, and Relief Organization, and try to uh, um, establish uh, an identity uh, for these refugees, thousands of them, who had been, uh, who had lost their, their personhood, who no longer had uh, uh, a nationality, if you will, and no longer had any rights as citizens uh, of a state. And this was the very important work that Benatar did in the second half of the war in 1943 and 1944 and 1945 was to uh, establish uh, protocols for giving uh, net refugees who were actually stuck in North Africa because there was no transit at that point uh, home uh, or to the West, uh, give them some kind of uh, uh, legal status. Right. And then I think also to focus in on Nellie Benatar, since she is the heroine of our story, more specifically, which organizations was she involved with um, and what were her main activities, uh, you would say, during her time of being a, a major player in humanitarian activism in this period? Well, her activities uh, were exactly those uh, that were uh, uh, an effort to uh, ameliorate the 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 poor situation, the poor conditions under which uh, refugees found themselves. Uh, and uh, after 1942, she was very much involved uh, in the important work of liberating prison camps uh, where Europeans had been uh, locked up uh, for two years. Uh, and in 43, 44, and 45, she became involved in these uh, these camps that were set up by uh, the United Nations with a great uh, deal of American help. Her contacts in 1940 uh, with the with with American Jewish uh, welfare organizations uh, began in a very very uh, modest way. Uh, she uh, wrote to them and she said she told them who she was and she told them what her problems were. And they began to support her modestly. Uh, the joint uh, had been involved in Morocco from 1939 when refugees arrived in the in Tangier, uh, and they sent a small subsidy to the Jewish community of Tangier. But after 1940, the numbers of people who needed that kind of help expanded immensely, and slowly, slowly, uh, the the joint uh, began to provide Nelly with a lot of money. Uh, to the tune of $5,000 a month, which doesn't sound like a lot now, but was uh, significant then. And with that money, she was able to help uh, people on her lists. She had uh, extensive lists of where refugees were located and who was needy uh, and who needed help, who needed uh, 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 medical help, who needed financial help. And these were people stuck in Morocco. And she used the money she received from the joint um, to help those people. She was also very closely associated with the American Friends Service Committee, uh, known as the Quakers. Uh, the Quakers were also in the same business as Nellie, but Nellie concentrated more on Jewish refugees, and the Quakers uh, 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 were involved with political refugees, Spanish Republicans who had fled Spain, 
German leftists uh, who are anti-Nazis, but they basically were in the same business of trying to relieve uh, people's uh, 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 situation, uh, try to uh, provide them with shelter uh, and food, and with the hope that they would have help uh, in eventually uh, leaving. Uh, the other people that Nelly was involved were, were was the, the an organization called Hesem. Uh, Hesem was uh, a European organization formed uh, during the war. Um, it was uh, a branch of the highest, the uh, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, uh, but they worked together, Hias and Hesem. And these people, the people uh, of of Hesem. And their story has never been told, really, uh, were heroic in their efforts to round up people, get them out of Europe, and help them uh, get to Morocco. Um, after 1943, there were also people in the French administration, uh, the Vichy uh, uh, pro-Nazi uh, government in France uh, weakened, it didn't fall, but it weakened its ties on its control of North Africa uh, more or less evaporated. And the supporters of Charles de Gaulle um, came to Algeria, and eventually Charles de Gaulle himself came, and they formed a node of uh, assistance to refugees, among uh, many other activities, and particularly Jewish refugees. And Nelly Benatar was involved with them as well, uh, providing legal advice. So there were many... Uh, avenues for her to work in, and she uh, she chose uh, all of them that, that to, to her mind were productive and, and effective. She was present on all fronts. Right. No, that's really fascinating. And it reminds me of a thread that I want to pick up that we started to discuss a little bit earlier, which is this idea of scale between individuals and organizations who are both trying to work towards a shared goal of ameliorating the position of refugees. Um, from what you wrote about the large human rights organizations' efforts to do this and the individual efforts to address the same crisis, there's a theme of efficacy that emerges. So some of these gargantuan and labyrinthian kind of massive human rights organizations can come off as inefficient, um, especially when juxtaposed against really the acute tact and wit and capability of people like Nelly Benatar and of the local Moroccan Jewish community. So my question here are, what are some advantages that the small-scale actors had that the big institutions did not? But vice versa, what are some of the advantages that these big organizations had that small-scale actors needed um, in order to make any sort of significant change? Well, that's a very uh, incisive and, and good question. Um, I don't think it was an either-or situation. Uh, the, the people on the ground who are actually dealing with the everyday problems uh, of the refugees um, were masters at manipulating uh, the organizations that back them. Uh, when I read Nellie's letters to the to the joint and the reports that she sent to the joint distribution committee, she knew exactly how to manipulate them to understand uh, what the nature of her work was. In the beginning, they had no idea who she was. Um, and the fact that she was a woman, and this is a very important fact, uh, was not to her advantage uh, because uh, it, it, uh, powerful women who were decisive, who could get things done, 
uh, were not uh, very commonplace in those in those days. Even the Joint Distribution Committee, an American organization, had very very few women in its top echelons during World War II. There are a few women who stand out, uh, um, but they were uh, exceptional. And the the problem for Nelly, for Nelly, and for others like her was to win the confidence. Uh, of the uh, of the management, if you will, which was almost a hundred percent male, um, and in her case, to convince them that she wasn't some fly by night individual, uh, she was suspect because she was uh, a woman, because she was a North African, uh, because she was a Sephardic Jew and not an Ashkenazi Jew, and that really mattered. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, she was an unknown, and uh, she was a rare a bird, if you will. And it took a while, a while for them to gain confidence in her. There was always this uh, aura of suspicion at first, particularly when she asked for more money. Uh, but over the years, she developed personal relationships. She was uh, very, very smart at understanding who really mattered in an organization. This, this is a real um, a gift. Uh, to to be able to uh, discern where the levers of power are in an organization that's whose headquarters are uh, you know six thousand miles away, but she figured it out and she was able to manipulate the the strings and to get almost in every case what she wanted. And of course, as she went from success to success, the the the, the joint uh, um, uh, people uh, uh, their confidence in her. Grew and uh, after the war, she became their representative in North Africa. When the amount of investment from the joint uh, in Morocco just uh, mushroomed by a by a hundredfold. Yeah, uh, the thing about gender, I think, actually brings us pretty naturally to the discussion that I wanted to have about methodology and how we go about writing a history like this, like what you've put together for this book. And so we talked about at the top of the podcast that to write this book, you relied heavily on Benatar's personal archives, in addition to some more common archival materials that a historian would need to do the political history of the subject. Uh, My question is, what exactly was in these archives in terms of content? Are we talking about letters, diaries, memos, etc.? And uh, how did you get access to them? Well, an archive is uh, uh, is like... Uh, walking across a, a, a terrain that you've never seen before, and you uh, you have to keep your head up and down at the same time. You have to watch the ground in front of you, not to fall into any holes. And at the same time, you have to uh, develop a sense of what the big picture is. Uh, for a historian, it is really among the most challenging uh, techniques. Uh, of writing history. And it was, uh, for me, it was a a long learning curve because when I started out with this immense archive, her personal archive of 18,000 documents, it was really like swimming uh, in an uncharted sea because I found everything in it. I found letters that she wrote, 
letters that others wrote to her, letters from all kinds of people in the administration, not knowing who exactly they were. I had to learn uh, the hierarchies uh, of the people that, that uh, she was dealing with and who they were and where they stood politically. Letters from individuals who were demanding, asking for help. Uh, I mean, Morocco was filled with refugees. By 1942, there maybe were nine or 10,000 refugees already in Morocco, if not more. We don't even know because uh, there was nobody at the train station or on the docks uh, to, to making a, an accounting of them. But Nelly's archives deal with at least 10,000 people uh, asking for help. Uh, in various locations, who was sincere, who wasn't sincere. You read the letters and you not only learn about the character of the person they were sent to, but about the character of the people who sent them and about the, about the, uh, the trauma of being a refugee and how uh, this sudden fall into uh, absolute non-being, if you will, uh, was uh, was an immense one. Uh, there there were all kinds of trivia. Nellie saved everything. If she wrote, uh, she had the ability to um, get medical help for refugees. Some of these people had been on the road for years and had all kinds of sicknesses. You can't imagine uh, skin problems, heart problems, uh, digestive problems, women's problems, and she was able to. Um, get them help. There were other people in her in her circle there in Casablanca that I talk about in the book, um, doctors who volunteered their time, uh, travel agents that help her figure out tickets, uh, people that that gave her um, goods, uh, 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 people in the Jewish community who offered their homes, who offered uh, uh, beds and clothing and all refugees. After a year or two, there was no possibility of buying any new clothing. Some were walking around in rags. Her um, archives show that. Uh, her granting uh, 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 a small amount of money to someone uh, to go buy some clothing because they didn't, they didn't have clothing. Uh, her uh, archives contained uh, consignments of food uh, because she ran a soup ch- uh, kitchen, uh, consignments of, of petrol to, so she could drive her car around between Casablanca and some of the outlying places where refugees were taken. It was this, in the archives contained the story of her incredible journey in 1943 to visit prison camps, uh, all documented there. I mean, I could go on and on. The variety of information was actually overwhelming. Uh, and Nellie had obviously gone through it uh, and tried to cull out, I think, it's my theory, um, anything that was too personal. But still, she couldn't, she couldn't get everything. So what I know about her character is from uh, people who wrote about her, and there were a few who did, and those things she left behind in the archive. And a consistent picture comes out. But the archive... Is, is really like uncharted country. Uh, working in an archive uh, challenges the skills uh, of the historian to, to the utmost. The intense, intense personal intimacy of this kind of archive brings me to the question that I want to ask about how you dealt with the emotional proximity to the historical subject, uh, to put it in a very cynical and kind of anesthetized way. Um, I'm curious how it affected your writing style and your approach to the book. And here, I just want to quickly read a quote from the book's fifth chapter. 
Uh, like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, the contents of Nellie's archive create narratives that conventional histories might overlook. She was not much of a self-explainer. Rather, she was the sober eyewitness who chose discretion over wordiness. She berated herself when she became heated, believing that sudden flashes of anger did not serve her well. Not in the courtroom and not in life. Discipline was a leading character trait. In cases of self-defense, the well-placed jab was preferable to the mighty slash. She tried to edit out of her archive any evidence of excess of her own passions, hates, and obsession. But sometimes they break through careful prose, illuminating her character with a laser-perfect light. And I love this quote because I think it gives us a fantastic glimpse into Nellie's personality, but it also exemplifies the authorial tone that you chose for the book. And so my question is, how did you decide what kind of prose to use uh, when you sat down to do this project? And how did the nature of the archive inform that decision? Okay. Uh, I, I will answer you uh, uh, as honestly as I can. Now, I had no idea when I started out how I was going to write this book. Uh, I, I was, uh, uh, my, my prior uh, history in writing history uh, was much more conventional. Uh, a lot of uh, use of secondary sources and texts and, and quoting the wisdom of others uh, and knitting together stories that uh, depended a great deal on uh on uh, prior research. And here I was uh, facing this mountain of material and with very, very little uh, to go on. Uh, certainly the general outlines of what happened uh, in Morocco and North Africa during the war were there, uh, but where did they apply to, the, to this particular person and, and what, she had, what she had done and, what, and the evidence she left behind? And it was really, uh, for me, a matter of total immersion. I was reading this archive for years and at first not really understanding it. And, and then suddenly at a certain point, it, it started to unfold to me and I began to see um, that the essence of it really was this very personal story. And uh, I was um, uh, not sure I could get at it. Uh, but but I I talked to other people that had done uh, written biographies. I began to read about writing biographies. I began to read uh, uh, work on feminist biography, and I realized that the dilemma I was facing, the challenge, was not unique to me, but other other people, uh, other women, who had written about women had this, the same. Uh, the same problems and the same issues, and it was it was like uh, developing uh, for for me it was developing a kind of intimacy with my subject, uh, and it wasn't something that happened overnight. Uh, it wasn't something I was totally prepared for. I can tell you uh, truthfully, uh, and uh, many things I had to talk over with those who were close to me uh, and get their views on what what I was thinking about that was extremely helpful. Uh, uh, my husband, my family, I talked with them about my subject. Having uh, people you trust uh, that you can bounce ideas off of helps you clarify your thoughts. And I, as I forged ahead, I gained a lot more confidence that I was on the right track. And I began to know her 
uh, as a person. Uh, you know, that's what literature is does. I mean, I was thinking of writing literature, not of writing a historical account. Literature uh, allows us to enter into other people's lives and learn something more about ourselves. And that was more or less uh, the, uh, the thought uh, that, um, that guided me. The more I read about Nellie, the more I understood Nellie and processed it through my own uh, feelings and emotions, the better acquainted I became with my topic. Yeah, that's fascinating. The The methodology is so different to do a project like this than it is to do something like a, a big political history. Uh, a different methodological question I have is about what you did in the face of archival absences um, in cases where critical information is simply missing because it was either not recorded or because it was intentionally destroyed. So this problem comes through in particular in your discussion of the anti-Vichy Moroccan resistance, of which Nelly Benatar was a part and of which we've discussed a little bit, very, very little has been written in terms of historical work. So my question is, how do you go about writing the history of a secret underground that by its very nature actively tried to not leave behind a paper trail or even traces that there were interpersonal relationships between people who were involved in their activities? Well, this is a, this is a really a problem because, uh, as you say, by the nature of the activity itself, uh, the trail uh, was wiped out. You know, um, there are times where you have to make guesses, uh, and there are times when you have to just jump a little bit overboard, and 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 hope that you hit the water uh, successfully without hurting yourself or anyone else. And on the on the the story of the underground, uh, this is a story that has to be told, and it can be. Uh, research further. Uh, I I didn't go the whole nine yards on this because it's actually a very, very large topic uh, and would have required uh, almost writing another book. Um, the, the, the underground operations in North Africa took place in all three countries of North Africa, not just Morocco. Tunisia and Algeria also had um, developed a underground organizations, and uh, their membership was also secret, and it's difficult to know uh, how they operated and in what ways. However, there are ways, there are means of investigating this more closely, and uh, perhaps somebody will do it, perhaps I'll do it, I don't know, but it's certainly worthy uh, of further further investigation. Um, I think what I tried to do in this book was to concentrate on Nellie and try to understand why she put herself at such risk at such danger. Here she was a mother of two young children. Her family didn't even know that she was in the underground, but she saw, first of all, that it was helpful to her in her work because the underground was involved in monitoring movement across the strait. Uh, and one of the important activities of the underground was to get uh, escapees uh, from Europe who landed in Morocco back into the war, particularly people uh, who were skilled like pilots. Uh, and Nelly was involved uh, a great deal in getting uh, pilots, British uh, and French pilots, uh, uh, back uh, into the fight, Polish pilots. But uh, she wanted to um, have good information on traffic across the strait 
because she knew that that would be helpful to her uh, in in her own work. Um, but there's there's another level here too that I discovered, and it's uh, not such an original uh, insight because the case was the same in Algeria that a number of the people who were involved in the underground uh, were Jews, uh, native North African Jews. And so I began to ruminate on why a majority, or I wouldn't say a majority, it's hard to know, but a large number, a representative number of people in the underground were Jewish. They weren't alone. There were French leftists. There were Spanish Republicans. There were all kinds of people uh, involved in underground activities. But the Jews were were a singular group. And the, the I do posit uh, uh, an answer to that question in the book. It, it was a way of showing strength and self-reliance at a time when this was exactly uh, the opposite of what uh, uh, enemies uh, of the Jews, the Vichy, the Nazis were trying to do, was trying to de- dehumanize them, uh, to show them as weaklings, to show them as undesirables. And Nellie stood up uh, and and was uh, there in the forefront of activity. Uh, and, and so were other Jews who were part of the underground. And I felt that was an important message. Uh, we're, we're, we oftentimes think of the Holocaust in North Africa uh, and those who were affected by it, particularly the Jews who were the subject of race laws, as being passive and immobile and unable to defend themselves. And to a certain extent, that was true. But there were also actions that, that people took, Jews and others who had been discriminated against by Vichy, that were uh, very, very brave and very, very courageous. And we need those stories. We need those prototypes uh, of courageous people to get a better uh, fix on what the war was like for people living there. Right. And then like the Moroccan resistance, another topic that you cover at length in the book, which has only recently become a major subject of scholarship and in which Jews are a representative, a representative proportion of the population who are involved are the Vichy regime's forced labor and concentration camp networks in North Africa. So this is a much bigger topic than I think we have time to do for the podcast, but I imagine that this may be the first time that some listeners are hearing about the existence of concentration camps in North Africa for the first time. So in a kind of panorama general outline for people who are just hearing about this history now, uh, what were the concentration camps that the Vichy French set up in North Africa? What were they like? And kind of what is the scope of the conversation that we're talking about here? Well, Vichy... um... Uh, had already established, actually before Vichy, there were camps in in France, uh, detention camps for undesirable aliens, uh, that uh, refugees uh, that uh, uh, from Eastern Europe were uh, detained in and that Spanish Republicans were detained in. The the, the, the idea of putting uh, foreign uh, uh, undesirables, non-citizens into detention camps was not a new one. And it had already been... uh, uh, activated in France before the war and even earlier. But why they were created in North Africa is a little bit of a different story uh, because the camps in North Africa uh, were created um, after the fall of France uh, in 1940 uh, to serve as detention centers for um, the foreigners and some French who were not wanted in 
in uh, uh, mainland France who were undesirable was the word most often used uh, and had to be cleared out. Now these were not, they were not extermination camps, uh, although the conditions in them were often quite horrible. They were places holding pens for people that the Vichy regime wanted to clean out uh, from uh, from uh, the metropole, from France. And in the end of the day, uh, over 10,000 men, they were all men in these camps, were confined to a whole series uh, of uh, uh, concentration camps in Morocco uh, and Algeria, spread across the rural uh, landscape uh, under uh, uh, French uh, supervision. Uh, some of the camps were set up for political prisoners who were anti, anti-fascist. Uh, other camps were labor, forced labor camps. And the camps in Morocco uh, that, uh, that uh, Jews and others were sent to uh, were uh, in, in housed people, uh, young men, many of them culled from the ranks of the French army after the fall of France, uh, and uh, not allowed to stay in France, uh, uh, they were put to work uh, on uh, on heavy-duty work projects. One of the most uh, 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 obvious was the building of a railway uh, that was supposed to stretch from uh, eastern Morocco across the Sahara uh, to Dakar. But in fact, only a very short uh, stretch of rail was actually put in place during the war. The uh, other camps uh, were punishment camps for the men who didn't behave and were particularly harsh and cruel. Um, all of these camps were set up uh, uh, in the period 1940, 1941. They were secret. No one knew about it. But of course, secrets get out and eventually word about these detention camps came to the attention of the Allies and of American uh, aid organizations. Uh, one camp in Morocco, Bergent, was specifically for Jewish inmates. Uh, Jewish uh, in, uh, detainees were sent there. Other camps were in mining towns, and the, uh, the men ha- were forced to work in mines. These camps were, um, of course, after the Americans landed in North Africa in 1942, there was a major effort uh, to liberate uh, uh, people uh, detained in these camps as the Vichy regime in North Africa crumbled. But it took months. It took months for them to be liberated. And Nelly Benatar played a very important role in the liberation of these camps. First of all, she made a census of the men in the Moroccan camps, found out that they were able-bodied and multiple skills and talents, and went to the Allies and said, why are you keeping these men in camps? They can help you in the war effort. They can work on the docks. They can uh, help you in unloading things. They can help you in transporting of goods. And the Americans realized that this was an asset and began to push uh, what was left of Vichy to liberate the camps. And in March of 1943, and to a large extent because of Benatar's uh, interference, uh, the Moroccan camps were liberated. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge historical topic that I think it's fair to say has really only relatively recently become the subject of major research. And it's certainly something that French collective memory is still grappling with, um, how to deal with the existence of these camps. And I think uh, you're mentioning of the role that Nelly Benatar played in liberating these camps and helping the prisoners who were formerly detained there 
move on to what was next and to get their freedom to start to get their rights back, their civil human rights back, um, brings me to the idea of the time period that we're talking about. So Benatar's years of glory refers to just a select few years coinciding with the Second World War, but she lived until July of 1979 when she died at the age of 80. So what did she do after her years of glory? What did her career look like uh, after this kind of very intense period of wartime activity? Well, you know, uh, after 1948 and the establishment of the State of Israel, uh, it was a period uh, of two decades of intense uh, turmoil in Morocco uh, about the fate of uh, Moroccan Jews. Uh, the, uh, the, the Zionist cause became a very, very potent one uh, in, uh, in North Africa and in Morocco in particular, whereas before the war was not very active, not very uh, uh, heated. Uh, the, the zeal uh, for Zionist uh, ideas and the idea uh, of a Jewish state uh, became very um, a motivating force for many Moroccan Jews uh, who uh, were caught up in the embrace uh, of the idea of living uh, in, in, in a Jewish homeland. Um, at the same time, this was also a tumultuous period in North African political history uh, when French dominion was, was crumbling at first slowly, but then very rapidly. And uh, each state in the Maghreb in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, and uh, saw the growth of our nationalist movement uh, and the desire for independence. Uh, in Morocco and Tunisia, uh, independence was achieved in both those countries in 1956, uh, but it was much more difficult uh, to achieve in, in, uh, in Algeria, 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 which had become actually a, a part of France, the tremendously bloody uh, war uh, of independence, the, uh, the revolution in Algeria went on until 1962. And the outcome of this were, uh, was, a, was years of turmoil in North, North Africa where the Jewish uh, minority uh, became very unsure uh, of its uh, fate uh, uh, and its future um, in, uh, in Muslim-majority uh, countries. And uh, a massive exodus began uh, in all in each of those three countries, uh, some uh, people uh, heading uh, for the Jewish state after 1948, others uh, creating a, a diasporas in other parts of the world, in France, in Canada, and uh, Latin America. Uh, the, the Moroccan Jewish community that numbered almost 300,000 uh, in 1948 um, diminished rapidly, and by 1967, uh, numbered uh, uh, oh maybe seven or eight ten thousand people that massive movement of humanity uh, of Jewish uh, people out of North Africa was the outcome uh, of the war um, uh, one of the outcomes of course um, Nellie Benatar was involved in all of this uh, after uh, 1945 and her uh, service in the uh, UNRWA camps she went to Paris and worked with the Joint Distribution Committee on the post-war um, resettlement of the last million uh, people in the caught in the DP camps in Europe, and she uh, worked there for three years with with the Joint um, in Paris, uh, doing the the everyday pick and shovel work of uh, 
reuniting families, of getting people visas, getting them resettled uh, out of out of Europe. Uh, in 1951, uh, she returned to Morocco and continued to be employed by the the joint and became the representative um, in in North Africa, uh, and uh, st- stayed in that post for several years. Uh, uh, until uh, the mid-50s when she finally uh, resigned or left that position and went back to being a lawyer. She herself did not show any indication of wanting to emigrate, even though her family started to to leave. Uh, But in 1962, uh, her situation as a lawyer changed uh, dramatically when Arabic uh, became the language of a legal proceedings and she was no longer able to operate. I assume that was the reason because that's the year it happened and that's the year she herself decided to emigrate. So she uh, went to Paris and lived the remainder of her life from 1962 to 1979 in Paris. For the next 10 years, she continued to practice law. She uh, passed the French bar for a second time uh, and and continued to practice law uh, until her late 70s. Uh, and she uh, uh, was close to her family, like many others. She made the choice to go uh, where her family was. Uh, she only visited uh, Israel once in her life. I have some photographs of her uh, planting trees uh, in, a, in a forest of the, uh, 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 of, uh, of the Jewish National Fund. Um, uh, and uh, her her soul uh, was truly uh, uh, with her family uh, in France, and she finally reunited with them. But she always, always maintained her Moroccan identity, although she was a French citizen. She always uh, kept her Moroccan identity. She headed the Moroccan um, uh, Migrants Association in Paris in, in the late 60s, and she never uh, denied or abrogated her Moroccan identity. That's why she's also a Moroccan heroine. Uh, And uh, hopefully uh, there will be a a moment, and I think it's coming very close, uh, that Moroccans will also recognize the heroism of someone like Nellie Benatar and uh, adopt her um, as a a sign and a signal of, of their own wartime experience. So my last question is actually about the very, very beginning of the book, even before the table of contents. It's about the epigraph. So you chose one of the most famous and most meaningful phrases from the Torah and really all of Jewish tradition to frame the book, Tzedek Tzedek Tzedof, justice shall you pursue. And I want to hear in your own words why you chose this as the epigraph, but also say that as a reader of the book, I found this phrase to be particular fit, particularly fitting in light of Nellie Benatar's repeated attempts to have her human rights activism officially recognized by the French state, which it never was. It seems to me that you pursued some justice of your own by writing the history of her life and publishing it here in this book, which stands as a kind of testimony to her heroism to which she had largely not received attention for uh, until now. But the question remains, which is why this epigraph for Nellie Benatar's story? Well, I think you've answered the question, Avery, and done it very well. Uh, uh, it, it fits. It fits, and uh, I felt it, it fitted. And uh, uh, although I'm hardly an expert on on on, on the Bible on, or on Torah, 
there's a this was also uh, uh, hanging in the office. This epigraph hanging in the office of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and that's where I first became acquainted with it as a as a as a token of of a lawyer's uh, dedication. And the more I thought about it, uh, the more I realized that Nellie w- was in the same category uh, of someone who was selfless, determined. Uh, uh, not willing to turn aside from her goals, uh, suffered for it, uh, but was still uh, on target, undeterred, uh, and in in many many ways, uh, 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 an earlier uh, example of what uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg became for for all of us in in, in our own lives. She was a remarkable woman was completely driven by her values and was willing to sacrifice uh, her own uh, well-being or her own pleasure, her own contentment, if you will, uh, for something higher. And I think uh, the epigraph uh, uh, captures that. Tirdofis means to run after something, to chase something, to pursue it. Pursue in the sense uh, of, of, uh, of an avid Average search, and and I think the the passion of that word uh, fits very well. The passion with which Nelly Benatar operated. Right, I think that brings us beautifully to the end of our conversation. So I want to say thank you again so much for joining us um, to talk about your book. You're very welcome. It's been a real pleasure.